Well, I don't know about you, but I sure miss the music at San Marino Community Church when I'm gone. It's just great. Thank you very much for that wonderful anthem. We continue this morning with our series during the summer on stories, and this is one story I couldn't help but tell. The story of Cain and Abel is not a text of Scripture that finds itself in the three-year lectionary cycle, but it's just too rich a text not to include this summer. So today we get to hear about these two brothers, and we get to explore together what has gone wrong in human relationships. I invite you to listen for God's Word as it comes to us from the fourth chapter of Genesis. The story picks up right after the fall of Adam and Eve when they begin their family. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out into the field. And then when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we have come today to hear your word. So speak to us now as only a living God can. Open our ears and our eyes, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas, recently spoke at a commencement address where he briefly addressed the issues of freedom and obligation. And in that address, he shared a little bit about his own story and his upbringing and its lasting impact on his understanding about human dignity and free will. He said this, In my youth, we had a small farm. And I'm convinced that the time I spent there had much to do with my firm resolve never to farm again. Work seemed to spring eternal like the weeds that consumed so much of our time and efforts. One of the messages constantly conveyed in those days 
was our obligation to take care of the land and to use it to produce food for ourselves and for others. If there was to be independence or self-sufficiency or freedom, then we first had to understand, accept, and discharge our responsibilities. The latter were the necessary but not always sufficient antecedents or precursors of the former. The only guarantee was that if you did not discharge your responsibilities, there could be no independence or self-sufficiency and no freedom. He went on to say, in a broader context, we were obligated in our neighborhood to be good neighbors so that the neighborhood would thrive. Whether there was to be a clean, thriving neighborhood was directly connected to our efforts. So there was always, to our way of thinking, a connection between the things we valued most and our personal obligations and our efforts. There could be no freedom without each of us discharging our responsibilities. When we heard the words duty and honor and country, no more needed to be said. But that is a bygone era, he said, and today we rarely hear of our personal responsibilities and discussions of broad notions such as freedom and liberty." End quote. The story of Cain and Abel is a story about personal responsibilities also set in a rural context. But I don't think it's a bygone era. It's a story about the choices we make and the freedoms that we choose in handling our disappointments and how we handle those around us who are successful. Cain's a farmer, Abel tends to the animals, and each confronts their responsibilities for the neighborhood in this ancient story. Now Cain's gift for some reason, as we heard from Elizabeth, unknown, has been rejected. While that pesky little brother of his Abel's gift has been celebrated. How unfair. How can God be so arbitrary and capricious? Where does God get off judging between the two of them anyhow? All Abel ever does is walk around with those sheep all day long. What does he know about effort or work? If God had perhaps sent a little more rain or protected Cain's crops from the locusts that took 30% of them during the dog days of summer, maybe Cain's offering would have been a little better. But as it is, God didn't seem to make it easy on him throughout the growing season. And now he turns on him, telling Cain that his offering's unacceptable. If it weren't for the fact that he's always being compared to that little twerp of a brother of his, I mean, how much easier life would be without him? And so he invites Abel into the field and with seething anger at the good that has befallen his brother, the good that ought to have been Cain's, he strikes his brother from behind and kills him. 
bitter. Now this story is almost as familiar as the one that precedes it about Adam and Eve. But for all of our familiarity with the story of Cain and Abel, I'm not sure we've really understood it correctly. I mean, the outline of the story is familiar enough to us. Two brothers have it out in a field, and with one crushing blow, 25% of the world's population is wiped out. And the first to taste death in the biblical narrative is not by natural causes, it's murder at the hands of a brother. And that is a very significant development in the story. Mom and dad were unable to live in God's world on God's own terms, and now the sin that has broke loose in the relationship with God quickly spreads to destroy the relationships between brothers. The two boys find it an even greater problem to live in the world where not only is God loose, but so too are others, even brothers and sisters in the human family. And the broken and the disfigured relationship with God on the vertical axis, axis now spreads quickly into the realm of human relationships on the horizontal axis. Sin has so defaced and so disfigured the life between the creature and the creator that every other human relationship in life becomes disfigured as well. Brothers and sisters, employers and employees, husbands and wives, parents and children, all have suffered some disfigurement and some crippling known as sin. Because when God is no longer God, then the risk of using others, even brothers, for our own advantage becomes very high. Now, if you looked at the title of my sermon today, you know it's a complete ripoff of John Steinbeck's East of Eden, set in the Salinas Valley in Northern California where he grew up, Steinbeck takes the story of Cain and Abel and he turns it on its end. And the story of East of Eden by Steinbeck turns on one Hebrew word with which the book ends. Timshaw. A Hebrew word in the text that gets translated you mayest when Cain is banished East of Eden. It's the idea that Steinbeck picks up that free will is something we get to exercise in life. He writes, quote, Don't you see? The American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin, and you call sin ignorance. The King James Translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshel, thou mayest, gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. End quote. Timshel, thou mayest, you may master it. 
Both Bruce, Bruce Springsteen and Mumford and Sons have songs that include this very word about free will and how we exercise it in life. Now, we live in a world with the same dynamics operating, which is what these recent commentators are reflecting about. God is loose in the world, and so too are others, brothers and sisters and employers and employees and mothers and fathers and spouses and children, and none of them are all that easy to come to terms with. Like Cain, we too must decide how we will respond to events and people that we simply cannot control. And there is a danger in how we handle our own anger, our own disappointments, our own bitterness and depression. And the story of Cain and Abel is for us, but it also is a story about us. Sometimes we respond to the good things that happen in the lives of others with anger and resentment because our own hopes and dreams for ourselves and our own lives are blocked or frustrated. What's happening to the other is precisely what we want to have happen to us. Think of all those athletes you've been watching the last two weeks at the Olympics. Only one wins the gold. Did you notice this week when the American women's soccer team was beat by Sweden in the quarterfinals? The response from one American was bitter. Goalie Hope Solo said, the best team did not win today. And she added, I strongly and firmly believe that. Kane might have said that to a reporter after the offerings were accepted. Cain dodges the question that God places before him concerning the whereabouts of his brother. He answers with a rhetorical question of his own. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for him? Am I responsible to guard him or protect him? Am I his custodian? And the question never really gets answered in the text. Yet we all assume that if God had answered Cain, the answer would have been, of course, you are your brother's keeper. But I think that might be a complete misunderstanding of the text. Here's the word in Hebrew for keeper, the word somer. It's a word that occurs 450 times in the Old Testament. And not once does it refer to an obligation of a human being to keep another human being. Bees have keepers, livestock have keepers, sheep have keepers. Keeping always carries with it the concept of some control or rule. And that's exactly what brothers do not do. In other words, keeping is synonymous with guarding or acting as a custodian of, and it's a function that's attributed to God and not another human being. How often have I used the familiar priestly benediction from Leviticus, the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. It's evidence that God is keeper, 
Brothers are not. By contrast, the word brother occurs seven times in three verses in the text I read. It's a strong indication of how important that concept is in this passage. We're not to be keepers of one another. Only God is able to exercise that kind of authority and control and rule. But we are to be brothers and sisters to one another. Not controlling or ruling, but standing beside and belonging to one another. We assist one another in such a way that others' integrity is kept intact and they are empowered to make decisions for their own lives. It's not a matter of we taking control and making decisions for them. We're not relieved of any and all responsibility when it comes to others. But we're not to be responsible in such a way that we seek to control or rule over others. No justification here for the kind of caring that robs others of their power to make decisions for themselves or robs them of their own self-respect or dignity. And it's particularly in those relationships where we do hold some authority and power over others that we have to be careful. Coaches, teachers, police, doctors, all have power over others. And we have seen so many examples of people who have abused their power and acted as keepers of others. Abuse of authority is epidemic. Sexual harassment, physical abuse by police, emotional abuse in families illustrate the way some abuse their power for their own advantage. And injustice has its own voice. And somehow the Lord is particularly attuned to that voice. Abel's blood itself cries out from the ground to God. So we should never act in ways that diminish another's ability for their own self-respect and dignity or take from others the responsibility of their decisions for themselves if they're able to make those decisions. We're not to be keepers of one another, but brothers and sisters who don't violate each other's dignity. This is particularly true when it comes to meeting the needs of the homeless and the poor and the mentally ill. I frankly have a bit of an aversion to the phrase, the less fortunate. Because there seems to be in that phrase, the less fortunate, the notion that the less fortunate need our help and therefore we should exercise power over their lives in whatever way we think necessary. I know sometimes we bestow our excess upon the less fortunate. We give our unwanted clothing, our broken appliances and furniture, and then we wonder why people aren't more grateful for our gifts. You see how easily brothers and sisters begins to drift towards keepers. We may be trying to feel good about ourselves at their expense with a tax benefit to boot. 
Don't get me wrong. Generosity is a good thing. But not with strings attached and not in ways that take the dignity of others away. And maybe that's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. And whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says, you worthless fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So maybe we can go all the way back and learn the lesson of Cain and Abel and then maybe we can learn how to live with one another instead of against one another. For one another instead of at odds with one another. Let me give you an example of where I've seen this work. Roger Johnson received a phone call from the East Coast. The caller asked, is this Roger Johnson? Yes, he said. Are you the Roger Johnson who owns a cabin up on Clear Lake? Yes, answered Roger. Six years ago, did you have a sailboat stolen from your boathouse? Well, yes, I did. Well, said the caller, I'm the one who stole your boat. And I'm living in Vermont now, and I've just become a Christian. And I'm trying to straighten out some things in my life, some of the things I've done. I've gone to a good deal of trouble trying to locate you, and I would like to repay you for that boat. How much was it? Well, after Roger found his voice from the shock of that message. They settled on a price and the caller apologized for the wrong he had committed against him. He took it very literally. Leave the altar and go and reconcile with your brother. And maybe too today we can find a way to reconcile with those we have wronged. Maybe we can find joy in the success of our brothers and sisters rather than envy and disappointment that it wasn't ours. And maybe we can learn to master our own anger and our own bitterness with God's help and become a little less like Cain. Thanks be to God who continues to bless us even here somewhere east of Eden. Amen.